With every story we hear, listen to, read, or tell, we make basic human connections that help define who we are. Welcome to Afterwards Paranormal, the podcast devoted to those stories that tell us who we are when we're in the dark. Listen closely now. The dark is speaking, and the need to be heard never dies. Hello, and welcome to Episode 25 of Afterwards Paranormal. I'm your host, Shelby. I hope this episode finds you well and having fun in the sun, days getting longer, more sunshine, and warmer weather. I know, guys. Longer days mean shorter nights and less time for zombie play. But don't be too disappointed. It's always dark in the library basement. I knew that would cheer you up. Our story for this episode is Osiris, The Weird Tale of an Egyptian Mummy by Adam Hall Shirk. To complement this story, I thought it would be fun to look into, you guessed it, Ancient Egyptian Curses. One of my favorite old movies is The Mummy with Boris Karloff. It's dark and moody and totally campy. Lots of fun to watch. If you've never seen it, you should. Reading this story reminded me a lot of that film. It goes back to ancient Egypt and an old curse. Oh, nobody enjoys an Egyptian curse more than I do. Very well. Without further ado, curse it all. This is from an article by Tiana Dorsey. In ancient Egypt, curses were placed on sacred objects and possessions to stop people from disturbing them. The curse will befall anyone who doesn't heed the warning. The first people to fear mummies were the Arabs who conquered Egypt in 641 BC. The Arabic writers warned never to tamper with the mummies or their tombs. They knew Egyptians practiced dark magic during funeral ceremonies. A sacred tomb contained ancient writings and paintings that showed disturbed mummies returning to the living to seek revenge. The idea of curses being linked with mummies has intrigued people for centuries. Here are the ten creepiest ancient Egyptian curses. 10. Tomb of Senmut The curse written on the wall at the tomb of Senmut translates to mean, His lifetime shall not exist on earth. The tomb was made for the Queen Heshepset of Senimut, also known as Senmut, royal advisor. He was a powerful man of his time and allowed to build his tomb close to the one built for the Queen Pharaoh. It was very rare privilege for anyone of non-royal blood. Number 2. Tomb of Hermermu The curse on the tomb of the high priest Hermermu translates to, I shall seize his neck like that of a goose. Ermermo's tomb has a stairway that descends to an open court where a chapel is carved into the rock below ground level. 
The entrance is encased with limestone, and there is a tomb of someone who was honored by this pharaoh. Number 8. Tomb of Panetnot. The curse on the tomb of Panetnot claims he will be miserable and persecuted. Panetnot was a high priest of the pharaoh Ramses II. Many visit this tomb every year, and it's open to the public to brave the curse. This is one of the best preserved tombs of its kind that haven't been lost under Lake Nasser. Manetnot's wife also shares the tomb with her husband in an underground stone chamber. Number 7. Bacharir Oasis. An archaeologist assisting with the removal of two mummies from the Bacharir Oasis tomb was haunted by dreams of children during the procedure. The dreams only stopped after the mummy of the father was reunited with his children at a museum. Many people involved with the removal of the mummies or escorting them have been haunted by strange dreams until the mummies were no longer in their possession. Number 6. King Ahmos I. In the 1950s, a young Egyptian boy visited an Egyptian museum. When he got there, He bravely looked directly into the eyes of the mummy of King Osmos I, defying the mummy's curse. Never look into my eyes, or you will die. Immediately, the boy fell sick with a mysterious terminal illness. Fortunately, once home, the boy recovered from his illness without any rational explanation. Despite the possible effects of a curse, his love of Egyptology was still strong. The boy went on to study Egyptian culture. And became. Egyptian hieroglyphs were not deciphered until the 19th century, and only then did archaeologists realize that some of the writings were curses. Several tombs were already being excavated, giving rise to stories of being cursed. However, one story precedes all others. In 1699, a Polish traveler experienced terrifying visions of two specters while traveling with two mummies in the cargo hold of a ship. The ship met with a massive storm, and the waters were dangerously rough until the mummies were thrown overboard. Number four, Kom Abu Biu. A young archaeologist, Zaki Hawas, learned the dangers of excavations. Became an archaeologist. Number five, the mummies of Alexandria. Egyptian hieroglyphs were not deciphered until the 19th century, and only then did archaeologists realize that some of the writings were curses. Several tombs were already being excavated, giving rise to stories of being cursed. However, one story precedes all others. In 1699, a Polish traveler experienced a terrifying experience. He saw visions of two specters while traveling with two of the Alexandria mummies in the cargo hold of a ship. The ship met with a massive storm, and the waters were dangerously rough until the mummies were thrown overboard. Number four, Kom Abu Biu. A young archaeologist, Zaki Hawas, learned the dangers of excavating an Egyptian tomb after working on the Kom Abu Biu site. On the first anniversary of the excavation, his cousin died, then his uncle on the second, and his aunt on the third. Years later, while working on the Pyramid of Giza, he translated the curse: "To all people who enter this tomb, make evil against this tomb or destroy it. 
May the crocodile be against them in the water and snakes against them on the land. May the hippopotamus be against them on the water and the scorpion against them on the land. Number three, Saqqara. Workmen spent the day on March 10, 1971, clearing a tomb and digging in the grounds of Saqqara, only 20 minutes from Cairo. The head of the dig was Walter Bryant Emery. He had found a small, very rare statue of the Egyptian god Osiris. He carried it back with him to the village center to leave with his assistant. He put it on a shelf, and then he went to the washroom to freshen up. Suddenly, his assistant heard him yelling. When the assistant ran into the washroom, he saw Emery, paralyzed, calling for help. At the hospital, he fell into a coma. By the next morning, he was dead. Number two, turning statue. In 2013, a Manchester museum claimed to have an Egyptian statue that rotated 180 degrees every three days on its own. The statue was in a glass case untouched by anyone except the curator who kept turning it back around. The curator explained that Egyptians believed if a mummy was destroyed, a statuette could be used as an alternative vessel for a spirit. Perhaps this had occurred before the statue had come to the museum. A time-lapse video was taken of the mummy. It clearly shows the statue moving without being touched. Scientists offered another explanation claiming the friction of two surfaces could be moving the statue. Number 1. The Tomb of King Tutankhamun King Tut's tomb was opened by Howard Carter in 1923. This discovery launched the modern era of Egyptology and put the most famous Egyptian curse into popular culture. 26 people present at the original opening of the tomb died in strange circumstances, most from mysterious diseases. While working at the tomb, Howard Carter, the head of the project, sent a messenger to his house. On arrival, he heard a faint cry and saw Carter's canary being eaten by a cobra, the sign of the Egyptian monarchy. The incident was reported by the New York Times in December of 1922, and the story went wild. Scientists have attributed bacteria on the walls of the tomb to the deaths, which might be true. Most of the Egyptian curses are metaphysical, but in some cases booby traps and the use of poison did enforce the curse, causing death or injury to those who entered. I think it would be great if mummy curses worked because I would like to leave a mommy curse in my kitchen. Those who do not waste their dishes must face the eternal wrath of Osiris. I think that might work. You are listening to Afterwards Paranormal the podcast that offers you dark tales from literature, lore, and you, the listener. If you're interested in contributing stories to the show, please stay tuned after the story for details. I couldn't find much on our author, Adam Hall Shirk. He did write more horror stories, and the script for The Ape, 
1940 film about a scientist played by Boris Karloff who disguises himself with ape skin so he can steal human spinal fluid. I'll have to see that one. He also wrote an article in 1918 called Is Spiritualism a Humbug? For this article, he collaborated with Harry Houdini, the famous magician. Houdini, after being fooled by a fake medium, dedicated his life to proving that talking to spirits was bunk. Much of his publicized discoveries put an end to the popular spiritualism movement of the late 19th and early 20th centuries. And now Osiris, The Weird Tale of an Egyptian Mummy, by Adam Hall Shirk. The recent and lamentable death of Sir Richard Parmenter, F.R.G.S., is too fresh in the public's mind to warrant further reference, and were it not that I feel myself capable of throwing light on the incidents contributing to the sudden and apparently unnecessarily snuffing of a valuable life, I should refrain from again alluding to it. It is well known that the physicians at the time decided that valvular weakness of the heart must have been responsible for the death of the noted Egyptologist. But the statement of his own doctor, that Sir Richard had never therefore exhibited indications of such weakness, and that he was, up to all appearances, in the best of health just prior to his death, caused considerable wonder. I had thought to let the facts remain buried, but for certain reasons I shall reconsider my determination to tell what I know. I shall always remember the night on which Sir Richard summoned me, his counsellor, to attend him and his apartments in Albemarle. It was a night of a storm, and the London streets were a mass of slime and slush. A beastly wind had sprung up, and as I left my chambers at the temple, it almost took me off my feet. Therefore, it was with no little satisfaction that I found a cheery log fire awaiting me in the library of my distinguished client's home, and the nip of brandy he provided me was a lifesaver. I noted, however, that for all his assumption of cheerfulness, something was preying upon his mind, and I determined to get at the root of the matter without delay. How can I serve you, Sir Richard? I asked briskly. I see that there is something troubling you. Is it as apparent as that? he asked, trying to appear unconcerned, but his strong, homely features belayed his effort at calmness. Before I could reply, he went on, But never mind that. I want you to write my will. Now. Your will? My expression of surprise and incredulity was natural, for since I had been retained by him, I had marked it as one of his few idiosyncrasies that he had never made a will. When I mentioned to him the advisability of doing so, he had put it by with a whimsical remark about being superstitious. I am in earnest, he declared, and it will be very simple, just a brief form, and I'll sign it with my man as witness. But why the haste, I said. Why not wait till I can have the document properly drawn up at my office tomorrow? No, now. He said, and there was such finality in his tone that I had no choice. My concern for my client, whom I really liked and respected immensely, prompted me to ask, You're not ill, Sir Richard? He shook his head with a ghost of a smile on his rugged face. Physically, no, but... He paused, and after a moment he again urged me to proceed with the making of the will. I drew up the document, which was a simple one, leaving the bulk of his large properties to his sister in Surrey, 
with numerous small bequests to his friends and distant relatives, and a handsome sum and his private collection to the British Museum and the Imperial Museum of Egyptology. We had in his man as witness, and the document was duly signed, after which he drew a long breath of relief, and with a return of something like his natural manner, passed me his cigar case and leaned back in his chair, smoking comfortably. I've a story to tell you, madam, he said between puffs, and it's a queer yarn, too. You'll think, but never mind. Listen first and say what you like afterwards. Only, he glanced about him with an apprehensive expression that fairly set my nerves tingle. I hope we have time. Time for what? I asked. He relaxed again and smiled. It's all right, he declared. I'm a bit nervous, I guess, but it's all right. Have another brandy. We drank solemnly together. Then he settled back once more, and I prepared to listen. Madden, said he, perhaps you'll smile at what seemed to be as serious enough to warrant the steps I have just taken, making of my will, I mean. But however you look at it, I want you to know it's true, every word of it. My last trip to Egypt, from which I had just returned a fortnight ago, was to be my final one anyway. I've made six trips out there in my life, and I've collected enough information to fill a dozen volumes. Also, I've contributed many fine specimens to the museum and corrected many misapprehensions concerning the interpretation of some of the hieroglyphs. So all in all, I think I've done pretty well. This last visit was in many respects the most satisfactory and indeed witnessed a triumph in my career as an Egyptologist that would be a crowning achievement were it not for... But we won't speak of that yet. I wonder, Madden, if you know anything about the ancient Egyptian religious ceremonies and forms of worship. Anyway, I may tell you that the Nile dwellers, as they were once called, recognized as their supreme deity Osiris, lord of the underworld. By some, he has identified with the sun, and with the forty assessors of the dead, he was supposed to have judged the souls brought before him by Horus in the double halls of truth, after their good and evil deeds had been weighed by Anubis. The Egyptian reverenced Osiris with as devout worship as the Chinese gave to Buddha, and the high priests of Osiris were regarded with almost as much awe as the deity himself. In all our studies and investigations, however, we have never been able to actually identify Osiris, but it is now generally conceded that he was believed to have lived on earth at one time, and it was only after his death that he assumed deific prerogatives. In this respect, the modern Christian theology may said to resemble more ancient form to some extent. Osiris was pictured on many tablets as the creature with the head of a bull, though there is a disagreement on this score. In any event, his tomb was said to exist near Helopolis, and it was to investigate the tradition that I made my last trip to Egypt. Sir Richard paused to relight his cigar and listen to the storm which raged without. Again, he gave that hasty, apprehensive glance about him and then proceeded. It would be impossible for me to explain to you, a layman, my fortunate joy at finding, by what means after which tedious labor I won't stop to tell you now, a deserted tomb which I knew from certain hieroglyphic markings I found was the very one of which I had been in search for a best part of half a year. Understand that this whole tradition of the tomb of Osiris was regarded by my fellow scientists as a myth, 
and if it had been publicly known that I had given it sufficient credence to spend a lot of time and money searching for it, I should have been looked upon as a madman and laughed out of the societies. This may enable you to appreciate more fully my sensations on actually locating at least the tomb. What should I find within? I hardly dared conjecture. The tomb of a god! Can you imagine it, Madden? And yet, if I had only stopped there, if I only had been content to pause with the knowledge I already possessed, without proceeding further and desecrating with sacrilegious hands that lonely sarcophagus in the desert. How I succeeded in penetrating this tomb, of the horrors of bats and crawling things that failed to stop me, of the almost supernatural awe that came upon me, I cannot pause to tell. It is enough to say that I stood at last beside the tremendous coffin of stone, trembling from an unknown dread. And, as I stood there, something white fluttered by me and up through the opening into the outer air. A sacred ibis. But how had it penetrated there, and how it had lived, I cannot say. Pour out another brandy, Madden, and throw that other log on the fire, too, if you don't mind. My, how the wind blows. Did you speak? Pardon me? Oh, I'm nervous tonight, as I said I would be before. Very nervous. Where was I? Oh, yes. That great sarcophagus stood before me, and on it I saw inscribed the sacred beasts and the feather of truth, while in the center was the word, the one, wonderful name, Hiseri, which is the Egyptian for Osiris. Insatiable curiosity now took the place of the reverential awe that should have possessed me. With vandal hands I forced the stone lid from the casket. One glance I had of a great bovine face, a living face, whose eyes looked into the depths of my soul, and then I fled as though all the devils of Amanti were at my heels. That is all, Madden, except that I am nervous, fearfully so. It is so unlike me. You know how small a part fear has played in my life. I have faced the dreaded Simun. I have been lost among savage tribes. I have confronted death in a hundred forms, but never have I felt as I do now. I tremble at a sound. My ears trick me into believing that I am always hearing some unusual noise. My appetite is failing, and I'm feeling my age as I have never felt it until... Good God! Madden! What was that sound? Oh, look behind you, Madden! Look! And now I come to the portion of my statement that will probably be refused credence by those who read, but as I live... It is the truth. As Sir Richard uttered his last words, he fell forward to his full length upon the hearthrug, even as I turned in obeisance to his command. The shadows were heavy in the far corner of the spacious room, but I could see a great, bulky something that swayed there, something that was part, and yet seemingly was independent of the shadows. I had a vision of two burning eyes and a black, shining muzzle, a heavy, misshapen head. A strange, animal-like fetid odor was in my nostrils. I shrieked, and turning ran madly from the room, stumbled to the stairs, and fled into the wind-swept night. I'm reading this from Weird Tales, the Unique Magazine, Volume 1, Number 4, of June 1923. I purchased a thumb drive that has several different editions of the magazine, and I am having so much fun pouring through them. 
Here's a little blurb that followed the story about the King Tut curse. Ancient legend recalled when misfortune attends Tut's discoverers. There is an old legend to the effect that whoever molests the final resting place of a pharaoh will be afflicted with the curse of the ancient rulers. And recent events have revived the superstition. After 33 years of patient, ceaseless toil, Howard Carter, the now famous Egyptologist, discovered the tomb of this powerful pharaoh. He was a very sincere man and devoted his life work with all his energy. Just when success and reward for his labor was within his grasp, he was stricken down with a baffling disease. His condition became very serious, and physicians said that if he lived, he would probably be an invalid for a long time. Shortly before Carter's illness, Lord Carnarvon, who was financing the expedition and who was personally supervising the work, suddenly died. Nobody seems to know just what killed him. Some attribute his death to the effects of an insect bite. Some say he was poisoned by some ancient death potion with which he came in contact while in the tomb. And others declare that his death was the vengeance of King Tatakamen. If such a legend could be credited anywhere, the Theban Valley would be that place. By day, nothing disturbs the place except the sound of pickaxes and shovels of the native workmen. By night, the stillness is broken only by the hooting of owls and the cries of jackals and wild cats. The spectator is awed by the solemnity of the great precipitous sandstone cliffs that stand sentinel on either side of the valley. In the midst of the silence and solitude, one feels himself standing on the brink of two worlds, gazing into a vista of the unknown. Well, that's it for this episode. Thank you so much for joining me here on Afterwards Paranormal. This has been your host, Shelby. And as always, I leave the last words for you. Thank you for listening to Afterwards Paranormal Podcast. Please join us on Patreon and Facebook. You can listen to Afterwards Paranormal on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Contact us at afterwardsstories at gmail.com. And remember, the need to be heard never dies. Thank you.